I hope that uh, you with me have been encouraged in this uh, brief little sermon series that we've done over the past couple of weeks now on the topic of hope and what does the Bible have to say about uh, hope. We have two more to go in this series this week, and I'm going to do one more uh, next week as well. And thus far, what we've done is we've kind of worked our way through this, is looked first of all at uh, the treasure of hope, that hope is a gift that's given to us by God. And then we looked at the struggle of hope after that, and we saw that hope is actually not as easy as it might seem. There are enemies of hope in this world, and so hope is hard. Last week, last Sunday morning, uh, together we looked at the exercise of hope, and, and we considered the question of how do we strengthen, how do we work our spiritual hope muscle. And then on Christmas Eve, if you were with us on Christmas Eve, we looked at hope incarnate in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the call that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 12, uh, love the simplicity of it, rejoice in hope. Well, this morning, we're going to look together at the horizon of hope this morning. Early on in, uh, in this sermon series, we noted the basic idea that hope isn't something that you can see or at least you can't see the object of hope because then it wouldn't be hope anymore. The very definition of hope is the ability to have confidence in and assurance about something that you cannot see. Hope, we could perhaps say it this way, is uh, is confidently envisioning the object even though its sight is just beyond the horizon. Hope sees what's coming even when you can't see exactly what is coming. Now, in order to uh, set us up today in this idea of the horizon of hope, I've chosen passages that are listed in your bulletin. It's going to be much easier to follow uh, in your bulletin than trying to trace through the scriptures with me uh, as I read through these. I could have gone to any number of places. I went to uh, Titus because in those three chapters, Paul is very careful to remind the readers all the way through of the hope that they have when he's calling Titus in terms of the way to pastor the church. And then I've got one more from 1 Corinthians 15 for us as well. So here, this portion of the Word of God as it's printed there in your bulletins, beginning first of all from Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. The next chapter, Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then the third chapter. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And now from 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter on uh, the resurrection, as Paul focuses on the resurrection of Christ and then ours with him. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Lord, we thank you for the incredible promises that are found in your word. And we pray that this morning as we consider these things that you would once again fill us with hope and that we would be a people who know what it's like to look towards you and to see you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite road signs, just one of them, is found just outside of Baltimore, Maryland, and it's a sign on I-70. And if you look up uh, I-70 in Wikipedia, you'll find that I-70 actually begins right there just outside of Baltimore. Uh, in fact, the, the, I guess it depends on your perspective, but either the terminus or the beginning point of I-70 is a park and ride uh, right outside of Baltimore, Maryland, one uh, where I have been before. And as you get onto I-70, the sign that first confronts you is this sign. It says, Denver, 1,700 miles. Right beneath Denver, 1,700 miles, is a sign that says Cove Fort, 2,200 miles. Now, just in case you don't know where Cove Fort is, and I certainly didn't know where Cove Fort is before looking it up this week in preparation for this, Cove Fort is a little teeny tiny town in Utah. I'm not sure anybody getting on, uh, well, I'm pretty sure that the, the percentage of people getting on I-70 in Baltimore who are headed to Cove Fort has got to be about zero. Uh, in terms of who's actually going there. But there it is, the destination is listed because that's actually where I-70 ends. Or I suppose you could say I-70 begins in Cove Fort. All right, here's another favorite sign. In Ocean City, Maryland, uh, I know most of you guys go to the Jersey Shore. I've never been to the Jersey Shore. I only go to Ocean City, Maryland when we go. But Ocean City, Maryland, if you get on the bridge that is heading out of Ocean City, so Ocean City, like a lot of coastal towns, is actually an island because of the way that the, the inlets have been cut. It's got a little bay behind it, the ocean on one side of it. But if you, if you get on the bridge, Route 50, heading across uh, towards Maryland, there is one sign that is posted 
above that bridge, right as you get ready to get onto it, one singular destination is listed there. And on that sign, it doesn't say Salisbury, Maryland, or Cambridge, Maryland, or Easton, Maryland, or the Bay Bridge, or Washington, D.C. Any of those things might be slightly helpful, given the fact that most people who go to Ocean City come from those towns or are heading back to those towns because they are proximate. No, those things are not written on that sign. There's one thing that is written on that sign. Sacramento, California, 3,073 miles. And so just in case you're heading out of Ocean City and you're taking a trip to Sacramento, there you go. You know exactly how long the drive will be. And in case you are wondering, sure enough, in Sacramento, California, only because the guy who was the city planner happened to be at Ocean City, Maryland one time and saw that sign and thought, that is great. So if you go to Sacramento and go on Route 50, right at the beginning of Route 50 in Sacramento, California, there's a sign that says Ocean City, Maryland, 3,073 miles the other direction. You and I are walking an ancient path together. And where it is going makes all the difference in the world. Makes all the difference in the world to what we do now. I remember when I was young and I was learning to drive. Uh, I made the mistake that I suspect uh, most of you, maybe all of us, maybe all of us made the exact same mistake. I got out on the highway and in those days I, I remember having a driving instructor. Uh, driving was taught in high school and I had a driving instructor and he was with me uh, as we drove on the highway for the first time. And like many of us, uh, I found it really difficult to keep the car centered in the middle of the lane as I was on the highway. I was watching the road very closely, uh, but you know what was happening, right? I, I, I kept kind of going from side to side within that lane. I was paying close attention. I was looking at my, well, I was trying to. I was trying to look at my speed. I was trying to look at the cars that were around me, the lines that were on the road, and my heart was racing, but I was weaving within my lane. And all of you know why, right? All of you know exactly why I was weaving in that lane. And, and my, my driving instructor, I still remember, said to me, you know, take a deep breath, take a deep breath, and look out. L lift up your eyes and look out beyond the road that is right immediately in front of you right now. And of course, I panicked. <laughs> I, 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 try, I said, no, I can't do that. I've got to stay focused on the things that are around me right now. There's a lot going on right around me right now. And he said, no, you need to look ahead. You need to look up because if you don't look ahead, you can't see what's coming. And if you don't look ahead, you're going to overcompensate and overreact to the things that are right in front of you. And thus, you're going back and forth in this lane. Where are we going? Where are we heading? What are our eyes fixed on? What is our hope fixed on? The Bible uses the word hope in ways that are familiar to us. They are ways that we might use the word hope as well. Paul can say uh, to people when he's writing a letter, I hope to see you soon. 
I would like to write more, but I hope to see you soon, and I'll tell you more when I get to you. It can say things like, I hope to send Timothy to you soon. Those are the kind of ways that we would use hope as well to describe something temporal, something that is soon to be in front of us. The Bible can also apply hope to a, a, a desired change in present circumstances, and that's how also we would use the word. We might say to somebody, uh, I hope your trip goes well. Uh, I hope you get better soon. I hope this job interview goes well. And the Bible can see that with present circumstances as well. In the Bible, you can hope for deliverance from enemies. You can hope for a return to your land for relief from trouble. You can hope for the Lord's blessing in your life. So, with what you're going to hear me saying today, don't hear me saying that it's always wrong to hope or to apply that word for things that are proximate to us, things that are near to us, things that are soon to be in your, in your near future. But when the Bible talks about hope, when it talks about, for example, the hope that is laid up for us in heaven, that's in Colossians chapter 1, or in Ephesians 4, when it describes the one hope that belongs to your call, or, or in Titus that we just read, where it says the blessed hope, or in Thessalonians where it describes it as the good hope, or in 1 Peter that we've looked at a number of times where it describes it as the living hope. When the Bible speaks of that kind of hope, it is specifically not referring to something that will change in your immediate future, somehow your life getting better. I hope things get a little bit better for you. It's not talking about our present circumstances. It is talking about the return of Jesus Christ in glory and the accompanying resurrection of the dead to life everlasting by the power of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That day, the day when the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ comes back to earth and all who are alive are caught up together to meet the Lord in the air and all who have died in Christ are raised from the dead and their bodies are reunited with their soul, that day and the eternal life which follows it is our hope. That is our hope and nothing less than that and there can be nothing more than that. That is the blessed hope that is set before us. The Bible writers have placed signs on the ancient path, saying this path, this road, when it gets to its destination, it has a destination, it has a place that it's going to, the sign says resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. That's where you're headed. The ancient path leads to, and, and it says it in all kinds of different ways in the Bible, right? The promised land, the promised place of rest, the eternal homeland, the better country, the heavenly country, the new Jerusalem. That hope broke into the world at Christmas. It was secured at Easter, and it will be completed and fulfilled at the day of Christ Jesus. And Christian... That is your hope. That is where you are going. If, for this life only, 
we have hoped in Christ. We are, of all men, most to be pitied. If it's only for this life, it's only, if it's only so that things are a little bit better, a little bit nicer, a little bit kinder, a little bit gentler, if your hope of being a Christian is only in this life, we're of all men most to be pitied. Our lives are short. They're mist. They're a vapor. They're a fog that lifts after a few hours. Last night, I got news with the death of an uncle that I'm now the oldest Huber in our family. I was number two. My father's brother was the oldest. I, I just bumped a generation. It's a mist. It's a vapor. It's a daylily. It's a hibiscus. Great and wonderful when they're blooming and then they're dead the next morning. And that is the case for us. If we hope on something so short and so fleeting as this life, it is pitiable. But instead, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the promise of our resurrection in him and with him and life eternal with him, that is our hope. Prior to the resurrection of Jesus, death stood in our view. A mountain of death was in front of us, and it obscured the horizon. We weren't able to see the horizon because death was there. And death looked like the horizon. Death looked like the destination. And after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death has been done away with, and our eyes can see the horizon. And the horizon is life eternal beyond death. This is so central, this, this idea of hope being fixed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and ours with him, that Paul describes it as the very reason that he's on trial. I, I, I put these passages, look at page 7 of your bulletins with me for just a moment. I put these passages from Acts here so that we could see how central this idea is. Note the pairing of hope and resurrection in almost every one of these beginning with uh, chapter 23. Now when Paul perceived that one part of the Sadducee were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the councils, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. It continues, 24. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Acts 26. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And then in Acts 28, once again, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. In, in the trial of Paul, hope 
is on trial. That's what he says over and over again. I'm on trial, I'm before you because of hope. Now, obviously, this wasn't just some general hope that Paul had. Paul isn't on trial because he was a, a, a hopeful kind of guy, an optimistic kind of guy, a, a, a kind of guy who always saw a silver lining uh, or saw, saw the world through rose-colored glasses. Paul wasn't on trial for that. Instead, he was on trial for a very directional, specific hope. The hope of the resurrection of the dead. Brothers and sisters, your hope is in a resurrection life eternal. What is set before us is one of, and this is quoting the Heidelberg Catechism, which is of course quoting scripture as well, one of perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human heart has ever imagined, a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. That's what's set before you. Nothing less than that is what is set before us as the people of God. In the murky, deep waters of Ecclesiastes, all kinds of, we'll call them sharks, roam about in those waters. And those sharks are trying and taking big bites out of hope. They're sharks of oppression and injustice and foolishness and madness, wickedness and impermanence. As the writer goes through all of the world and all of the activities and he sees all of these things, it all seems hopeless to him. Those are all the sharks, but there's one big shark. We'll call it Leviathan. There's one big Leviathan, one big shark in Ecclesiastes. And when that big shark rises to the surface, all of those other sharks, as bad as they are, they scatter away and the one Leviathan that seems to eat up all life and all hope and render everything vain is death. Death. It's the thing that puts the cloud over everything else. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Leviathan of death is put to death. When, when Jesus is resurrected, hope is resurrected and vanity is vanquished. It goes away because of the resurrection of Jesus. And the writers of the New Testament implore us to lift up our eyes to that glorious horizon. They say to us, if you're going to be full of the kind of hope that you want, we want you to have, you have to see the sign on the road that tells you the final destination, and that's the final destination. Look with me again at these passages from Titus. Titus 1, 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Titus 2, 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's almost as if the writers can't give a command to us without reminding us of the hope that is set before us in Titus chapter 3, verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That 
is the sign that greets us as we merge onto the pathway of the Christian life. And all along the way, there are signs reminding us of that final destination. This is where you are heading so that our soul and our body will not fix our hope on the transient things of this life, but will recognize that there is something beyond death, that there is a life eternal that is set before us. You have your hope is not just for a good life, or a good marriage, or good children, or a good job, or a good education, or that you'll get through the week. Your hope is nothing less than an eternal hope. And it is, First Peter on the front of your bulletins, it is unperishable, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It is securely guarded unto the last time. That is your horizon. That's where we should fix our eyes. We should look at it. We should marvel at it. We should cherish it. We should nurture that. We should exercise that hope. We should work that hope that I am heading to the place of eternal blessedness. Now, if I was a young Christian, or if I was a young driver, and you said to me, lift up your eyes, or as a Christian, look up. Look, look at that hope that is set out there for you. I would have said to you, Pastor, listen, that's all well and good. And I'm glad to have the hope of eternal life, and I'm glad to know it. But, but here's the problem. Here's the problem, and I'm going to switch back and forth here between as a Christian and as a driver. There's a truck coming up on my tail. I got cars who are whizzing by me, and I can't stay in my lane. I'm not trying to get to Sacramento today. I'm not trying to get to Cove Fort. I'm not trying to get to Denver. I'm just trying to stay alive for the next 15 minutes while I'm on the highway. I'm just trying to get the next week. I'm just trying to survive a white-knuckle drive through life. I don't need to know about it. I don't even need to know, right? Sacramento is an irrelevant sign, I would have said to me, to you. If you just said, no, Sacramento is good to know because that's where you're headed if you stay on Route 50. I said, that's an irrelevant sign. I'm trying to get to Baltimore or D.C. I, I, I don't need all of this. I, I just need this. Just, just give me this little teeny tiny, tiny slice. Your grand horizon of the final destination doesn't help so much with today and my present problems. And that's what I would have said. I know it. I know it. I still feel that within me now. When I'm facing a particular struggle and I can't get my eyes off of that particular struggle, if you came to me, and some of you have, and reminded me of the hope of everlasting life, of blessedness, I would say, yeah, but that's not going to solve my problem today. I know I would have said it as a young Christian because I still struggle with exactly that today. Here's what I find. So incredibly surprising and surprisingly wonderful. When the Bible tells us to have this grand vision of hope, it almost 
every single time does so with a view towards present practical circumstances. Uh, let, me, let me try saying it another way. The point of instructing us in an eternal hope is not to make us somehow, with respect to this world, irrelevant, ambivalent about the things that are in front of us, about the responsibilities that we have, about the challenges that are in front of us. It's The, the point isn't to just make us bystanders, unconcerned with the things that are going on around us, uninvolved in the things that are around us. The point isn't just that our heads will be up in the clouds somewhere and we wouldn't do anything here. No, the driving instructor says to us, look out and look up so that you can deal well with the things that are in front of you. And that is the consistent message of the Word of God. That's the way the Word of God uses this idea of the horizon of hope for Christians. For example, 1 Peter. 1 Peter is an incredibly practical book. It's dealing with very significant and very difficult issues and relationships within the life of a believer. The relation of the believer to the state. How does the relationship work between masters and slaves, between husbands and wives? These are very practical issues. We all live in those issues every day. And yet Peter says, I can't explain, you can't understand how to live in those circumstances unless you are sure of the hope. You have to be sure of the living hope that is yours because what I'm going to tell you about practically living in those circumstances won't make any sense unless you're sure of the living, blessed, good hope that belongs to you, the one that is imperishable. Or look again just for a moment at these verses in Titus. Look at the section in Titus 2, 11 through 14, bottom of page 5. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the future? Sometime later? No, in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. So, so Paul is concerned about the present age in light of the horizon of the blessed hope that is coming. And then verse 14, it continues, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. When are you supposed to do the good works? Later? Sometime in the future? On that great day? No, the point is do the good works now. And the people who are good at doing good works now are people who are full of hope for that day that is coming. The next section there, Titus chapter 3, uh, the, the verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I'll read you verse 8. It's not listed there. Verse 8 continues, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. <laughs> in other words, Paul's saying, in light of this great hope that is ours, do good. Do good works to other people because, as it turns out, it's excellent and profitable. Now, if we could just 
look at side by side at the book of Ecclesiastes. One of the great questions from the book of Ecclesiastes is, is there any gain? Is there anything profitable in this world where death seems to reign over everything else? And the profound biblical answer is, yes, indeed there is. Yes, indeed, because there's a hope that transcends death, and so devoting yourselves to good works is profitable. It's an excellent thing to do. And of course, 1 Corinthians 15, the great chapter on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and ours with him, concludes with words that I've shared with us a hundred times in a hundred sermons. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Vanity has been vanquished by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and therefore we should always be abounding in the Lord's work. Hope fixed on the horizon of eternity, the horizon of eternal life, and the resurrection of the dead by our union with Jesus Christ in his resurrection is extraordinarily practical. Maybe it is as simple as this. Maybe it is as simple as with the sunrise in the morning, realizing and reminding ourselves of the promises of where we're heading, of taking a moment to look at the sign that says eternal life, blessed, the resurrection of the dead, and the life everlasting that is set up there in front of us so that we know how to live today. Now, as we close, there's a kicker. There's a kicker in this. Each of the signs that I mentioned has mileage listed. On the sign that says the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, there's no mileage listed. We don't know how long and we don't know how far. And there's a reason for that. The reason is you are probably somewhat like me. And if you knew, if you knew that the destination, Sacramento, was 3,000 miles away, you'd say, who cares? What does that have to do with the next hour and a half? But there's no mileage listed. So there's no way to dismiss it. So the call for the Christian is, in hope, wait well. In hope, you have to be ready now. Hold your hope. Employ your hope today while it is still called today. That's why there's no mileage listed. That's why it doesn't say on the sign, Jesus returns in fill in the year. So that every generation of Christians live while it is still called today. Engaging our eternal hope in doing good to the people who are around us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have that kind of vision, that kind of sight set before us, that our hope would be in you. We confess, we admit, we acknowledge as people who live in this world that it is far, far too easy for us to get caught up and swallowed up even in the little things that we've got to do, day to day, week to week, hour to hour, and to forget about the eternity that is set before us 
a blessedness, a glory which no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived. What blessedness forever is set before us. Lord, help us to remember it, because that's our hope in Jesus. Help us to remember it, so that then we live well today. We pray this in your name. Amen.